On our 100th episode of China Unscripted, we're joined by Laowai86 and Serpent Zede to talk about how the CCP hit a home run with the coronavirus, the courage of Hong Kongers, and what it will take for people in the mainland to rise up against the CCP. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And this is a very exciting episode for us. We have made 100 China Unscripted podcasts. Wow. I kind of can't believe it, actually. Right? Right? This uh, little dream that we started on when we were in Australia. Well, the first episode was right after we came back yeah. from Australia. Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. Three years later. Mm-hmm. And to celebrate 100 episodes... Joining us today is Matthew from Laowai86 and Winston from Serpent ZA. And of course, their joint channel, ADV China. Really excited to talk to these guys. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us for the 100th episode of, of uh, the China Scripted podcast. It's a big one. Thanks, yeah, guys. Pleasure to be here. You know, we had you on back in April. That was when the coronavirus was just, you know, beginning to color 2020. And, you know, since then, people suddenly have become concerned about the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, how did that impact your work? Oh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, it it helped in a lot of ways, but it, at the same time, it also hindered us a lot. You you have to understand that the more attention we got, uh, the more attention we also got from the fifty cent army and uh, the sort of malicious ones out there that try to shut us down. Because when you speak truth to power, especially a power like the CCP. It doesn't go down very well because it goes against their narrative. And so it really gave a lot of drive to a lot of um, uh, malicious forces. And they went after us hardcore this year. And it's been very difficult. We've had all sorts of threats on, well, against ourselves. We've had death threats. We've had threats against our children and our wives. We've had all sorts of nonsense happen and uh, people trying to find out where we live specifically. And uh, it's been a little rough. Yeah, I remember you posting something about like somebody who like, made some horrible, like, racist slurs about your daughter, who's, uh, how old is your daughter? She's one. Yeah. <laughs> one oh, years old. Real, real stand-up person. Yeah, I mean, they, they love it. They relish in it. They, they put out these things about how they can't wait to see my daughter to being beaten up for being, like, uh, half Chinese and stuff like that. You know, just ridiculous stuff. But it comes with the territory. It's something that we've been dealing with for years. So, yeah. Um, I've, I've actually... I, would agree with you in the beginning when the coronavirus thing kind of kicked off and we were warning people about it really early on. Yeah. Uh, just because we saw how bad it was for our friends over in China. Um, that's really, really when the CCP kicked off. I, I'd say it was our worst year for, for threats and things like that. Yeah. It got to the point now, like we've, we try to not post too much about it. Like there's some stuff we received the other day, mm -hmm. me in particular, that was like probably the most vile thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't want to bring more attention to it, but at the same time, it has to be put out there so people understand what we're up against, because I don't think people realize how much of a concerted effort there is just against a few YouTubers like ourselves. Well, because this is the Chinese Communist Party directing people against Americans. Correct. 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 And I think until... I don't know, until people start taking that seriously, no one's going to realize it because there's not a whole lot of people out there like us, right, doing what we do. There's people that might commentate and say, yeah, like, oh, Winnie the Pooh is banned or they offhandedly make remarks or stuff. And they get some woo-maws in the comment section, but it stops there. When it's when you're trying to really, really bring light onto some very, very bad things that are happening, 
for the benefit of mankind in the world, that's when they really, really hammer it home and really go after you. But mostly your family, to be honest. Well, yes. That, and a lot of us do compare uh, the CCP to a mafia organization. Yeah, yeah. Just because their methodology is so similar yeah. <laughs> to the way mafias operate. And of course, the one thing they love to do, works. Yeah, the, yeah, the thing they do is they lean on family in order to shut someone up that uh, they don't uh, want speaking, you know, and that's what they do. They go after family, family in China, mm -hmm. uh, family abroad, it doesn't matter. They're, that's who they target. And unfortunately, this mindset has trickled down into the 50 centers and whether they are voluntary 50 centers or uh, paid 50 centers, it doesn't matter. They still like to go after family because they know this is an effective tactic that they've been taught by a Big daddy sheep. It's it's very common to use that in China. So if you remove us from the entire equation of you know we've we've met people in China where it's not even political dissent dissidents or anything sure. like this. Maybe it's someone like their mom owes money or something, or uh, there's a bunk business deal and they don't want to get rid of their house, mm -hmm. and but the government wants the land for real estate development. They will go after a different family member, put pressure on them, either lock them up in a black jail or send them threats, freeze their bank accounts. It's just how it works there. So they transport the, the ideology into other countries when they want people to shut up. Yeah. So have your families in China also gotten threats because of what, your YouTube channels? For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, this, this this is one thing we probably don't like to sp spread too much light on, obviously, because sure. it could exacerbate the situation. Yeah. But uh, definitely, yes. Yeah, I understand. It's kind of that, you know, you, you don't want them to get away with it because if you don't talk about it, they think it's working. But on the other hand you know, there are people who are actually in danger. Yeah, yeah. sure, there are people that uh, can, can be affected. You know, at the end of the day, um, I tried my very best to kind of divorce myself from my Chinese family um, and make it as if they've got nothing to do with me. And yeah. that, that way, it more or less protects them, you know, mm -hmm. so I don't involve them in my videos, I don't involve them in, in most of the things that I do. And of course, I keep them completely in the dark about my YouTube channel and so on. So uh, it, it helps to a certain degree. But, For yeah. sure. If there's any questioning involved or whatever, they can, they can always claim ignorance because they don't yeah. know anything, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, I just want to provide some context for the audience watching. Like, you know, the Chinese Communist Party covered up the coronavirus at the beginning, which is why we're in this mess. And you guys early on were trying to tell people this is something we need to pay attention to before, right. before even uh, like the, the governments of the world were really responding to sure. this. And for your actions, your families are being threatened by the Chinese Communist Party, a country that the EU just did a you know a fancy new deal with. And the New York Times recently wrote a piece praising how uh, China's freedom, how much freedom they have in China oh, because man, of how well they handled the coronavirus. Yeah. I, I would like to talk about that a little bit. You know, um, one of the reasons why I was able to, uh, we were able to talk about this a lot in the beginning is, you know, my wife is a doctor or used to be a doctor, Chinese doctor. And she still hangs out and all the doctor friends. And so she was getting the, the news about Li Wenliang before it hit mainstream media, before mm. it, like people had known about it. And that's why I was able to release a video about him having to sign those papers and stuff before he even died. So, you know, I was kind of quite early on into that. And I'd known about it for a couple of days prior to that because she'd been receiving these messages and so on. And it's tragic what happened and how they actually shut down uh, people that were trying to warn others. And, you know, that's all in the past. But the thing that's annoying me the absolute most right now is the fact that it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as if the rest of the world is starting to buy all these lies that the CCP is putting out, all this crap that the, the virus originated elsewhere. 
be it Italy or the US Army or Australian frozen beef automotive or parts automotive packaging. parts. It's ridiculous that I'm, I'm, I've talked to people and they're like, yeah, you can't really prove that it comes from China, you know, uh, show me some proof. It, it just beggars belief. I, I just don't understand how it is that people are falling for this. It's like somebody uh, stabs someone in front of your eyes and then walks around saying, I didn't do it. And everyone who saw them do it, it's like, yeah, maybe he didn't do it. We didn't really see the knife penetrate, you know? He it's, said he didn't do it. Yeah, it's just it's pissing me off. I, know, I don't know how else it's, to say it. It's high trust versus low trust societies. I mean, the yeah. thing is to go back to when, it, when I originally broke that, it was so easy to find evidence of the cover-up on the Chinese internet when it happened because mm. the Chinese government's pretty bad at covering stuff up when it initially happens. It's the whole ladder of power there. This person needs to talk to this person, needs to talk to this person. So there were netizens talking about what was going on. Right. It was very, very simple. I mean, I had news networks like CNN, all these whatever news networks reaching out to me about this story when in fact they could have had their own journalists going out there and just by doing this stuff. You know, it was, it was all out there. People were saying like, yo, people are getting sick. This is what's happening. This is what I think is happening. Look at this, I cashed this website. Look at the history of this website. All that stuff was out there and it just took so long for people to catch on. But the whole high trust versus low trust society thing, you had netizens in a low trust society talking about this because they were concerned, right? Yeah. You have a high trust society after the Chinese government has a year or so to kind of recollect and, and figure out what narrative they want to push forward. They spout it out to the high trust societies and then everyone eats it up because they say, listen, that's a position of leadership. That's a government of a massive country. Of course, what they say is probably, sure. you know, we can take it at face value. This is mm -hmm. official official media, you know? Yeah. But it's just lies. Yeah, I think a big part of it too is in many ways, Western media has been kind of complicit in helping push these, these lies. Uh, this week on our other channel, American Covered, we have an episode coming out about some of the like really shady links between American corporate media and the Chinese Communist Party, things like groups tied to China's United Front, giving American journalists from like the Washington Post or New York Times paid trips to China, fancy dinners. And it's, it's, it's mind boggling that this is allowed to happen. Yeah, well, hopefully this is, and I'm glad you guys are covering that. That's incredibly important. That's, that's one of the most important things for particularly Americans to see yeah. right now is to, to make connect those dots because no one's connecting those dots. No one is, yeah. And hopefully this is a turning point where things will actually, like concrete things can be done hmm. because, you know, I, I like to keep a uh, positive outlook on this whole thing is that we're, you're finding out about all these connections, you're reporting on this stuff. That's the next step in the right direction because- People weren't talking about those connections before. There was no, there was no dialogue about it. At least there's a dialogue about it now, so that authorities can look into it and people can start making up their mind about who to trust. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the the pandemic breaking out played directly into the hands of um, certain narratives that are going on in in Western mainstream media. Anyway, it was fantastic for them to be able to point out weaknesses in leadership, for instance, of the American government. And they're like, look how badly America's dealing with this, you know, shining a spotlight on it, making China out to be some kind of hero. Look how well they do it. But the whole purpose behind their drive to report on this is to basically tear down uh, the current leadership in America. It's very transparent to someone like myself, who's not American, looking in from the outside to see exactly what was going on. So it just played right into their hands. It's absolutely ridiculous because at the end of the day, as badly as America handled, you can say, the coronavirus and the spread of it once it arrived here, first of all, it wasn't their fault that it arrived here in the first place. But the fact of the matter is, is that America has been very transparent when it comes to the numbers 
You know, when the infection numbers, the death rates, things like that, they've got daily up-to-date numbers coming out. In China, all the numbers that were released publicly are bullshit. We can prove that quite easily. Even the, the Chinese government has admitted that the numbers are off, you know, and maybe 10 times more than what they were and all that stuff. We know it's a hell of a lot more than that. And we know this because the way uh, China works, just the way the, 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 the whole structure works is nobody wants it to be their fault. So at the very low level, local provincial level, if they get an outbreak, they will try their damnedest to suppress news about that outbreak because if it gets out, it means they fail. And if they failed, there's a lot of punishment and there's a lot of loss of face, et cetera. So, I mean, if it does start to get out, it gets up to the next level. Now, the next level guy who oversees that small provincial area or whatever, he doesn't want his head on the chopping block. So he'll try to divert and make excuses. And so what you found was you found a lot, especially in the beginning, of people dying from the coronavirus, but on their death certificates, it would be written uh, complications from pneumonia or uh, flu or something else. So it wasn't counted as a number. And the amount of infections and deaths related to coronavirus in China, we will never know. It's just impossible to know. But a lot of it was swept under the rug. Unlike in America, where every single case is reported, so that made this massive imbalance. It looks like a huge imbalance. It looks like China did such a great job. They're like, oh, there's only like one infection every day and it's always a foreigner bringing it in type thing. Meanwhile, when you've got friends that are there on the ground, you know that it's not one infection in a day because they're hearing about multiple just through like word of mouth and the grapevine. Certain areas are being locked down because of coronavirus, but it doesn't make it like international news. It's still a big deal there, but the mainstream media in the West jumped on this to say, look at how weak and useless our leadership is and how many mistakes they make and look how strong and amazing China is. And it's really sending the wrong signal to everyone. Whether you want to think there's nefarious reasoning behind that or not, mm. um, from the Western media side, you really got to keep in mind that it's just lazy journalism to begin with. Because you, if you had journalists that spent a lot of time in China, you'd know that the coronavirus situation is not, this is exactly how the Chinese government operates. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about, um, you know, the coal output or a city that cleaned up its streets or, you know, uh, AIDS, the AIDS outbreak up in like Anhui and stuff. Yeah, there's always <clears throat> GDP. It's always this whole ladder system where there's no accountability for the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And everyone just keeps kicking, kicking the can down the road. So yeah. there, why would that be any different for a pandemic? I mean, look at SARS, right? Why would that be any different? It's only into the, the Communist Party of China's benefit to make sure that the rest of the world looks at it as a success story mm -hmm. and downplay, you know, Taiwan's success and the whole whole endeavor, you know, yeah. the fact that yeah. they, they cut off their borders to, to mainland China and look, look at what happened. You know, SARS is a great example because China never told the world about SARS. They didn't tell. The rest of the world found out about SARS when all those people in Hong Kong got sick because of that mainland doctor that went to the wedding and, you know, people started to get infected. China knew about it but didn't let anyone know because that's how China operates. When I say China, I always am talking about the Chinese Communist Party, obviously, for those of you who are dumb enough to think I'm talking about Chinese people. Um, what happens is they would rather let something kind of just burn out if there's a problem, kind of go away on its own uh, and hopefully go away on its own before anyone knows about it so that it's not an issue. Unfortunately, when you've got something like a pandemic, which doesn't just go away, um, you know, they try to hide it as long as possible, hoping it goes away, but it doesn't always. So SARS, they never told anyone about it. When it came to 
the new pandemic, the COVID-19 Wuhan flu, whatever you want to call it, they kind of reached a point where they had to tell people about it because nowadays, especially, it's not like back in 2003, the way the internet works is different. You know, uh, information was getting out a lot quicker than it was previously. So they kind of had to do something about it and they went on full damage control. They leaned on the WHO to pretend that it wasn't a big deal and to say it wasn't human to human transmission when they already knew that it was, for instance. They pushed the WHO to rather just praise the efforts of China and how well they're dealing with the situation rather than warning people and following proper protocol that's been set up to help other countries prepare for this kind of thing. If they'd followed the correct protocol, which is there already, many countries around the world would have been prepared and uh, would have stood a chance of stopping this coming into their borders and spreading. But unfortunately, that's not how the Communist Party works. And on top of that, they pushed the racism angle. And if anyone was gonna be like, listen, there's this deadly disease coming out of China right now, and it's unknown, it's very contagious, we don't know what to do. We wanna block flights coming in from China, specifically Wuhan, where it's originated from. They say, ah, that's racist, you know, go hug a Chinese, that kind of thing. It was just a, a stupid circus to watch from somebody who has a rational mind, you know? And and that hug a Chinese thing actually did happen. That was was that in Italy? It was in Italy. It was in Italy. Yeah, yeah it really yeah, it really that... happened. You know, and even in New York, Nancy Pelosi was like, "Let's go go down to Chinatown and show how much we love China and the culture. Let's all go party in Chinatown." Mm-hmm. When you've got this deadly disease, specifically during Chinese New Year, and tons of people traveling back from mainland China to Chinatown, let's go there. Let's all go get infected. That's a great idea. You know. Yeah, meanwhile, the Chinese people were not going to Chinese stores because they're like, I don't want to get this. No, that's it's rational thinking. That's that's the big di- difference is my family members, you know, my wife, all Chinese people I know, they're like, hell, wear a mask everywhere you go because they've dealt with this before. I remember I was in China during the second SARS outbreak and all that stuff that happened there. People are accustomed to wearing a mask. When you go into Hong Kong, for instance, from the mainland Chinese uh, through the border, they scan your temperature. They've got medical staff right there with handheld temperature scanners. If someone pops up on the IR, they go up and they, you know, read your, you know, your forehead to see if you're, you've got a temperature. They tell you to take your hat off, that kind of thing. And you get used to that because it's a, it's a necessary measure to make sure that something like SARS doesn't spread. So people in Asia living in and around the, the Chinese area are used to wearing masks whenever there's any kind of a, even a slight possibility that there's some disease going around. That's why Taiwan did so well. Exactly. And so the Chinese people living in the States were like, holy we know something real is coming out of China. Don't go to the Chinese supermarkets. Don't go mingle in the, like, you know, the big areas. Wear a mask, stay home. My, My one friend's Chinese wife was so paranoid that she just didn't leave the house pretty much from the first time anyone heard about it. She still hasn't left her house. She refuses. She's that paranoid about it. Wow. So, you know, the actual, the, the Chinese diaspora were the smart ones, and it was everyone else who was being, oh, I don't want to seem racist, so I'm going to try extra hard to catch this disease, you know? It was dumb. So what you're saying is people should have been watching you guys instead of CNN. Well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you, if you want to make a whole positive thing out of this, like I like to, we can say that the world is kind of, a lot, in general, is kind of duped at, the China's, at China's response. They, yeah. they believe that they handled it correctly through authoritarian measures, when we actually know actually what was happening. Sure. But the, the good thing that China's doing now, to me as a positive, is actually blocking the WHO 
from coming in to go do an investigation of Wuhan, because that is the most telling thing you can ever think of. Sure. If you're blocking like Australians or you're blocking independent uh, organizations from coming in to investigate Wuhan, we expect China to do that. Yeah. But China has so much influence in the WHO to the point where if they're blocking them from doing an investigation, I think the world can finally wake up and figure out what's actually going on here. Sure. Why would you not allow a, uh, an, a complete organization that you have completely lined their pockets with to come in and, and pay, pay their dues again? The first time that they came in to have a look at Wuhan, they barely even went there. No, they did. They, they did. went out around on an entourage and yeah. had nice meals and things like this. So sure. if they're blocking them from come publicly from coming in this time, it's uh, and they claim it's a visa issue and stuff. At least that news might be able to change some people's minds about what really happened. Yeah, yeah. It's really well, good. that's one of the, the one of the things I want to mention because I think at least something I've noticed about the coronavirus is that it really has changed how uh, your average person will talk about China. I've I've noticed a lot more people like talking about the Chinese Communist Party in a way I've been wanting them to talk about the Chinese Communist Party since I started uh, China Uncensored in 2012. Have you, have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been a little bit of an awakening. Um, I think people that were very just maybe oblivious, didn't even care about China, at least they know about China now. Mm. At least they, they talk about China or they have talked about China, whether it's in a positive way or a negative way. Um, the fact of the matter is it's it's at least a topic these days. Although, you know, unfortunately, not as much as people like you and I would hope, you know, because China does, mm -hmm. uh, the, when I say China again, the Communist Party of China, um, they do pose a, a massive threat to the world at present. They pose a massive threat not only to freedom of speech, uh, to the way our media is made. Look at how our movies are being censored and changed just to suit the, the Chinese communist uh, censorship, you know, so that they can get in and stuff, which basically ruins the movies. Um, but it also has a massive effect on our environment. You know, the, the clandestine fishing fleets that go out and strip the oceans of every, th every living thing. You know, the, the factories that still release huge amounts of carbon. It's, it's crazy that the, you hear these climate activists like singling out the EU or something like that, where China outputs more carbon than like India and the US and every other country like put together every year and is doing more damage than, than anywhere else. You know, China is a topic that people should know about and should be discussing and it should be on their radar. But and, and that's one thing, like you say, that this year has maybe given us is a little bit more awareness. I think it's a two-way street though. The silver lining is that yes, it's become a topic on people's tongues. Like no, people that just had a passing interest or not even a passing interest in China before just thought China, oh, that's that country over in Asia, you know, Chinese food or whatever. Very, very passing information. They don't really understand. The coronavirus has made it at the forefront of people's minds because they have to talk about it. It's affected everyone in their own, own respective countries. Yeah. That being said, the two-way street is that how has the CCP actually used this to their benefit to go back to that whole thing? Yeah, It's been very clear that it has been a success. It's been a home run story in uh, some people's minds. And to me, although the, the dialogue is there, mm. the importance that the dialogue of China being there is important for authorities, it's important for national intelligence, it's important for national security. Those departments can finally take these things seriously, potentially. Sure. sure. Um, but in the zeitgeist of human psyche, I think that the, it has been a two-way street. I think that China has come out of this with very positive vibes and also maybe some negative vibes from from certain people. But the fact that it is a conversation is important. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about, you know, how governments or authorities can deal with this versus 
you know, ordinary people, because I think we've also seen governments have like a split in terms of like the people who are more related to the finance aspect of it uh-huh. versus the people who are more like national security related. Sure. So I think the national security people for a long time have been like warning about this at the Chinese Communist Party and all this stuff. And then the people who are kind of like, well, we want to trade with them. We want to do business with them. You know, then they have that whole like tension between the two, like which one actually gets to call the shots. Uh, so I think we have seen more, to your point, uh, Matt, like the more the national defense stuff kind of come yeah. up. So that is a positive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that it's interesting because even a year ago, the Chinese Communist Party already started their propaganda campaign, like almost before or right when they first acknowledged uh, the coronavirus, they were already starting the whole like at first it was like, oh, you know, we are keeping the coronavirus within our own borders and saving the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. when they couldn't say that anymore, then they were like, oh, you know, now it's that we're doing better than anyone uh, anyone else. So it's been kind of hilarious and tragic to see how well that's worked a year later. Yeah, I Totally agree with you, Shelley. And that the funny thing, this is a funny aspect, actually, was that when I was uh, kind of following what the Chinese internet was doing for soft power surrounding this whole thing right at the beginning, was people I suspected on TikTok and Douyin and these apps, the people that I suspected as being kind of CCP plants, um, but never really coming out and saying it, maybe people just saying how amazing the high-speed rail system is, how clean China is, how safe China is, all these people just putting out soft power stuff, very harmless stuff. In the beginning, immediately, right when it came out, before it hit US borders or any other border of any other country, you know, publicly, the, there was a huge effort in these TikToks and Douyin videos, which is Douyin, by the way, to, to your audience's um, Chinese TikTok. It's what they call it in China. It's the original TikTok. The original TikTok. TikTok's yeah. actually just... American Douyin, you know, also yes, West, Western Douyin. Yeah. Anyway, when I'm following these influencers, I watch them all shift immediately. And I'm talking about every single one of them. Coronavirus is curable. Don't worry, we got this under control. Look at our medical staff. Like this will not get out of China's borders. Don't worry about this. No one, barely anyone's dying, blah, blah, blah. Then it starts getting more serious. And they're like, wow, look at the heroes here. The government leaders are really at the forefront of this. Sure. They're taking care of these cities they've locked these places down. It is serious, but don't worry. Like we got this under control. Mm. Then, you know, I watch it shift. And then when it finally leaks out of China and it hits these these other countries and stuff, now the influencers are saying, look, look, we've already taken care of this. Now you guys have to deal with it. How selfish you are for not wearing masks, how ridiculous you are. Look at how powerful China is and organized and unified China is. Yeah. Then it really starts hitting the West and they say, now we have zero cases. Now the West can suffer basically. And it was this whole narrative that you just watched happen from day one until now, um, where the soft power stuff, these influencers that were either paid or whether they're voluntary or not, doesn't really matter, but had a very like, you know, positive vibes about China just went into coronavirus content completely. Sure. Sure. It was really interesting. Yeah, and they all kind of had the same message. It's yeah. just exactly like you're seeing now in the, the last couple of days is every single kind of um, either a, a shills or a nationalists or whatever, they all have the same line. They're all doing this like, what a beautiful site that the Capitol building, you know, it's just a, what an amazing uh, thing, you know. Equating the yeah, Hong Kong protests basically to the trying to, yeah, Everyone that's doing that, it's all the, it's just like puppets saying the same thing. It's a bunch of, you know, it, it's, it's just crazy to see it. Same thing was going on with the, the propaganda surrounding the coronavirus. Right. 
Well, so you mentioned just now Hong Kong. I think that is another big thing that happened this past year that at a minimum should have affected how the international community sees how well China honors its agreements, its international agreements. You guys went to Hong Kong, right? We were in in Hong Kong a couple couple years years ago. Yeah. You know, I was actually there during the 2014 um, umbrella movement. You know, that that was insane. And, uh, you know, it was very similar to what happened when they shut down the main streets. When were you there during 2014? Uh, uh, Quite a few times, because remember, I was just over the border in Shenzhen. So I popped over a few times. I didn't make any videos about it because I knew at the time I've got a lot of photographs and footage from that whole event, but I didn't put anything out because at that time I was still living inside mainland China. And I knew that if I made a video about that stuff, I'd just immediately be deported or shut down. So it was funny because I was like, I wonder if we accidentally crossed paths without knowing it's, it. Maybe in yeah. 2014. It's, it's entirely it possible because be. I, I walked around the camps that they'd set up on the roads there. And, you know, it was quite fascinating how they set up the tents and even had postal addresses on their tents and sort of outdoor showers for everyone. And they had you know, places for people to study. It was uh, it was really interesting. I loved it, actually. It's cool. Much more organized than the Chaz Autonomous Zone that was created in the U.S. recently. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. just a tad. Yeah, a lot more organized. I mean, that's the thing. Um, that's why people should take what happened in Hong Kong so seriously, is because quite seriously, without a doubt, Hong Kong is one of the most civilized places that I've ever visited. You know, uh, I was married to a Hong Konger some years back. So I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and I have a lot of appreciation for the city of Hong Kong, the country of Hong Kong, whatever you want to call it, uh, the autonomous region of Hong Kong. And the people, they are incredibly, um, I get a lot of respect for them is what I want to say. They're very civilized and the way everything runs there has always been very good, especially with such a, a, a dense population. The fact that everything works so well and you know they keep it so clean and everything has always been you know really, really good. Uh, on all aspects, really. Uh, more, more, more impressively, it's not a you know iron-fisted society like in mainland China or even some aspects of Singapore. It's one of the yeah. freest territories in the world, and that's quickly slipped. For yeah. that really hit us hard because we spent so much time in Hong Kong, literally living right across the border. Mm. To watch Hong Kong be this bastion that we could always hop into, you yeah. know, it was always that place. It, it was, was an escape from China. It was an escape from China. It was also the place I took refuge when I when I left China, right? Yeah. And it was always that safe zone. It was always that safe place where you knew that you could say what you wanted to say. You could see what you wanted to see on the internet. You could get food. You could get food that was guaranteed. Food's not going to make you sick. Yeah, you know, you could get all the international brands that you can get, and you get things for your child that you can trust. You know, it was like going on holiday overseas if you just stepped over that border. You know, so it was a huge treat to go into Hong Kong. So Um, to see the protests, you know. It was so inspiring, at least from our end, to see millions of people go out there and, and fight for their rights. And we're talking about ethnically Chinese people fighting for their rights against the tyranny just across the border that we knew yeah. so well. Yeah. Talk about the the abs- absolute uh, bravery of those people. It was unbelievable. We actually had a friend that flew over there himself just to participate, an American guy. Yeah. Um, Anyway, long story short, when we saw that unfold, um, we kind of knew the writing was on the wall, not oh, yeah. to be morbid about it or anything or be like a Debbie Downer about it, but mm. we knew that it wasn't going to end well. And sure. we didn't have these kind of uh, this, these ideas that people said, oh, it's going to be Tiananmen 2.0. But what we did know is that all the bills that people are protesting are just going to go through anyway. I mean, yeah. there is no real end game for that other than to show the rest of the world that China does not honor agreements. Yes. Um, because the national security bill is obviously in full force right now. 
Um, there, you know, the China, I like how the Chinese Communist Party said that they wouldn't need to use it. We've had the national security law in action in Macau for how many years now? We've mm. used it once or something. Yeah. And then they constantly, consistently use it over and over again to anyone pro-democracy right now. Yeah, they just arrested Macau. those 50 pro-democracy guys and yeah. uh, it's so that they couldn't vote. You know, that the, it's being used as you would expect them to use it. Including an American citizen. I mean, that's the thing. They are using it in the way that everybody was afraid they would use it. And that's why there was such a stink about it. That's why so many people went out to protest because they could see the writing on the wall. They knew that this was going to happen. Uh, and so they went out and, you know, when you've ever been a, a part of those protests, because in 2014, I was in there. I was in those masses, you know, the when the police were kind of rushing and they set up those barricades, it was hilarious. They set up those barricades with bamboo and they had like gloves giving the middle finger you know, they kind of glued them or whatever, and they put them mm -hmm. on the end of the bamboo yeah, poles. It was just, it was funny. It was really, really funny. Creative. Um, creative. But when you're there and that you've got so many people having a clash with the police, but at the end of the day, everyone kind of walks away and goes to work the next day or whatever, and you don't see massive injuries or death or anything like that. It kind of just shows you what what a good society you're dealing with. Because if it was a lesser society, there would have been absolute chaos, which there wasn't. And you know, there were violent clashes, especially in the 2019, lots of violent clashes. But once again, bigged up by the media, made bigger than what they are, made as if it was like a horrible tyranny. And it was just frustrated people trying to put a message forward. Uh, you know, listen, we can't let this bill go through. And then of course, the, the communist backed police and the triads and all that saying, Screw you guys, we're gonna come here and mess you up. This is going through, you know? And it's just, ter it's terrible. The outcome is what everyone feared it would be and nothing changed. And it looks like the rest of the world kind of just forgot about it. And it, it again, makes me very angry. I don't know about you guys. I mean, we went to Hong Kong multiple times and I, I think we felt safer there, right? Covering a protest uh -huh. than we have felt covering protests in the US uh, and like from 2014 to 2019, there's a big difference in how, you know, much uh, violence there was from the police and then how much like, you know, resistance from the the protesters. But even when we were there in June versus October, like you could see it getting more violent, more tear gas and whatever. But still, you just didn't feel like, <laughs> I don't know, how, like, you know, there was it was a lot of violence, but you never felt, especially among the protesters, you never felt unsafe. Around the police, maybe a little different. But... Yeah. They've got volunteer medics running around with like fresh water and, you know, like band-aids or whatever. And it's, you know, it, it's something kind of beautiful to see, to be honest. Those those young, especially the young people getting together because of something they truly believe in and working together and helping each other out. And it's something you could see all the time throughout the protests. And of course, in any situation, you're going to have some bad eggs. It doesn't matter what country. You're going to have some people that push the limits and go over, go overboard and do some crappy, terrible things. And it doesn't matter what protest, wherever you go in the world, you'll find this. But I'm saying as a whole, and especially the, the sheer numbers that were involved, mm -hmm. the it just proves, like I said, what a civilized society Hong Kong really is. Because, you know, with so many clashes and so many people involved, so few people actually got hurt. I have a question for you guys. Your your coverage was very excellent yeah. uh, when you went to the Hong Kong protest. Um, Thanks. And we were really impressed by it. And what I wanted to ask was that we have a very strange conversation the other day. We were talking about how it feels so weird to know that we can't go there anymore. You guys were just there during the protest. What does it feel like to know that you guys could be nabbed under the national security law? 
I mean, I mean, it's tragic. I think we all really loved Hong Kong. We've been we went there three or four times over the past couple of years, uh, starting with the umbrella movement. And yeah, it's just bizarre to know that unless something completely changes the power structure of the world, we will never go back to Hong Kong. I'd say right now we would never go back. We'd be putting people in danger. Yeah, anyone you know? who met with us. Um, we actually ended up taking down all of our videos of our fan meetups in Hong Kong yeah. because, you know, they said the national security law wouldn't be retroactive, but they've can't. used it retroactively already. Well, it's not quite not retroactive yet, but like, wasn't it? No, like it's on the way. So I wouldn't be surprised. So there's definitely, you know, a sense of like weird, like loss there, I think. But at the same time, you know, we're not like the people who are literally fleeing their homes and can never go back or like Nathan Law, who's like, OK, well, now I have to. You know, how many people have we? Or Joshua Wong. Right? Well, he's arrested Agnes again. Chow. How many people have we interviewed that are in prison? Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. I was having a conversation on uh, with one of the people that we had that was one of our friends in Hong Kong. And I won't obviously name who this person is, uh, but he right after the national security law, I said to him, you know, uh, are you going to leave Hong Kong? Because he had the the means to do so. And he's like, no. And I said, well, are you going to continue doing your outspoken work? And he said, yeah, I'm going to continue it. And like, he knew the risks. He understands what's at stake. And it's like, despite being able to leave, he won't leave because he's so dedicated to the future of Hong Kong that he's willing to put everything on the line for that. And I was like, I was really touched by that. And I was like, wow, like... Like, and, I, and I'm the person who's like, oh, I don't want to go back to Hong Kong because they'll get arrested. Uh, and then you have, you know, he's representative of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are at some kind of risk just because of their participation in this. And they're going to stick it out. Uh, and this that that type of courage, I think, you know, people really aren't talking about that. Yeah. But it's very inspiring to me. Yeah. You know, I actually have a, a very good friend in Hong Kong. And like if the Chinese Communist Party ever found out. It could be a lot of trouble. And, you know, my, my friend, her name is Carrie Lam. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really sad. Fortunately, like me and the U.S. government has been sending her money to try and get by. <laughs> um, so I just really hope she's OK and safe and that nobody from the Communist Party is watching this and goes after her. It would just you, be... you have to help her because she can't bank right now, right? She can't bank. <laughs> Let us know how we can help. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our heart goes Absolutely. out to poor old Carrie. I wanted to quickly touch on that, where you said the, the amount of courage that is being shown by your friend is something I've noticed a lot in a lot of Hong Kong people. But I've also seen it being sapped away from a lot of people. A lot of people that were very headstrong and very much in it for the fight have kind of reached that point where they've realized that um, it's pointless to to continue because of the amount of damage it's doing to their families and to to themselves. And they've kind of just left, you know, either left or they've stopped attending anything to do with uh, pro-democracy or anything like that. And, you know, you, you also have to put into perspective, the people that went to these protests and go to these, uh, that are involved in this, they grew up in a free system. They grew up when Hong Kong was uh, a place where you could kind of do what you want. You had freedom of speech. I mean, they've got the Boy Scouts, for goodness sake, over there. It's very weird. It's very British. You know, if you have ever been to Hong Kong, you see people <laughs> have high tea, for goodness sake, on the menu at the restaurants, okay? It's a very British system, very similar to what I grew up in in South Africa, being a former British colony, of course. But, you know, you've got the this this very 
law-based system. Trust me, it was it was when I had to go through that divorce. You know, you got to go to all those courts and do all the things. You know, it's very much based on British law over there. And so when you grow up believing or not believing, knowing that, you know, there's a, a system of law in place and knowing the system, your whole life being one way, and then all of a sudden it changes. It's difficult for a lot of people to, to actually, you know, contextualize and realize that, hang on a second, it's not the way it used to be. And so they will continue to try and do what they want because in their minds, they firmly believe that they have the right to do X, Y, Z. But unfortunately, when they get nabbed and they get arrested and put away and they're like, but it, I should be able to say what I want. I've been doing this my whole life. That's when suddenly they get gut punched and they realized they realize, whoa, and they kind of back down. Unfortunately, I've been seeing that happen to a lot of people. Also, I think one of the downsides of the Western response to this whole thing is that maybe political leaders and people that are internationally inclined would understand what's happening. But, you know, your average Joe on the street, if he hears about these protests in Hong Kong, he's going to be like, oh, Hong Kong, that place over there in China, without realizing that those people for their entire lives, like you said, have enjoyed the same freedoms that the average Joe has enjoyed in his own country. A lot of people say that place over in Japan. People are kind of yeah, you know, dumb about Hong Kong, I'll be honest. And then it just becomes a passing thing, right? So I wish it had more. I know it had international attention, but I wish it had more international implication. The worst part about it, though, is that when for instance, look at the NBA thing. Sure. Okay, somebody actually voices support for the Hong Kong protesters or, you know, the Hong Kong pro-democracy people. China beats them with a stick, mm. makes them apologize. Suddenly, NBA is threatened within mainland China. What kind of message does that send to everyone else? Mm -hmm. So somebody starts to speak up for the rights of, and freedoms of people of Hong Kong, and they get completely obliterated, lose their jobs, have to apologize, delete their tweets, do whatever they have to do. Uh, and then it kind of gets pushed under the rug. So the, the awareness just isn't raised because of China's like heavy-handed tactics. I, I had a, a situation where I did a little experiment and I just put out, I wanted to see what the, the masses would think, right? Mm -hmm. So I put out a, a picture on WeChat, a WeChat moments, and it was just a picture of Hong Kong. It was not of the protest. Right. And I, I wrote, um, you know, Hong Kong is, is a beautiful place. I, can, I think that's what I wrote. Mm. And <clears throat> I think I got, more than 200 comments below that from people I knew um, telling me that I need to remove this or I can't believe you do something like this. Screw Hong Kong, those cockroaches. Um, Hong Kong is disgusting. Shame on Hong Kong, all this kind of stuff. And the people I know, I'm talking about people I know, right, right in mainland China. Because I was trying to gauge like what public opinion was during this whole thing. Mm. When did you do that? That was like towards the beginning of the the protests when people when it was fashionable for Chinese uh, Ch people higher up in China like celebrities to post like that shame on Hong Kong thing. Right. Um, I can't give you an exact date, but anyway, when I posted this, um, it was very interesting to see the public response from people I knew. Then at the same time, I also received a message from a student that I had once had years and years and years ago that said him and his friends um, anonymously went into Hong Kong to participate in the protests and said that, listen, don't get beat up by all these people saying this because the people that actually are looking up to Hong Kong in this situation and support their, their fight, even here in mainland China, us mainland Chinese people, we're not going to be able to say anything. You're just seeing the vocal people that are parroting, you know, Communist Party of China narrative. But the real people that are supporting the situation, we have to stay under wraps, yeah. you know, and I was really inspired by that. But there's a, a really interesting point you're bringing up, Matt, which is that uh, the people who are vocal in China are the people who have a view that tends to align with the Chinese Communist Party. 
but the people who have a dissenting view, those people simply aren't saying anything. So how do you actually gauge what public opinion is in mainland China towards uh, Hong Kong, towards the CCP? How would we even know? It's tough. I think it's only down to personal one-on-one conversations. So mm. when I talk to my friends, either in Chinese or in English, one-on-one, we can kind of get an idea of what's going on. I'm also seeing those same people, people I'm very close to, also even on one-on-one conversations being less transparent with me as well. Not because they have anything to hide, but because they're they're worried about the implications. They know, like if they're using WeChat, for example, they know that our our conversation is potentially being monitored, especially if they're talking to me and I'm not using a dummy account or something like that. Um, And to gauge public opinion, you can put stuff out there and see what sticks, but people that are gonna go out there and parrot CCP narrative, I don't blame them for anything. I I, I know that's just what they've been taught to think and say, and this gut reaction to to a foreigner putting something like that up in particular, Uh, but also anyone posting anything about the Hong Kong protest. To gauge actual public opinion, it's almost impossible because the CCP has been wildly successful in not only shifting the whole narrative to their own citizens, but just preventing any real opinion from going out there. Unless you're on anonymous forums, um, there's some on Reddit, there's some uh, that I read, um, you know, on Chinese internet that don't require the Chinese citizens to sign up with their ID numbers and all of their information and phone numbers and stuff. Unless you're finding those, you're never going to see a true, honest public opinion. Mm. You know, I also was very disappointed that mm-hmm. a lot of the the people that I talked to in China, mainland China, just the apathy and uh, disinterest in the whole thing. I find, of course, you get the vocal, you know, nationalists that are jumping on every opportunity to scream how. That's great, not the majority. Yeah, how great China is. But the majority of like normal people that I know, you're like, if you try to ask their opinion on Hong Kong, they're like, yeah, I don't really know. They're, I heard they're doing something bad, you know, and but they just carry on with their normal lives. They don't actually give a crap. And to me, that was actually kind of disheartening to see how many people. Uh, are just apathetic. But that's actually kind of a Chinese thing, to be honest, is that you see the news, it's always blasting at you. It's in every newspaper that the uncle's reading on the side of the road. It's on the TV all the time. It's on the billboards everywhere you go. And it's always, you know, the party narrative, Hong Kong bad, CCP good, whatever, something along those lines. And they see this and it's like subliminally there. They don't pay a lot of attention to it because that's something you realize very quickly in China is that if you get too involved in any particular thing, it doesn't matter what it is, it can actually affect your life in a very negative way. Mm-hmm. You know, especially since in mainland China, the narrative switches very often. So, you know, one day you might have to be enraged about something, but the next day, if you continue to be enraged about that thing, then it's bad. Right. You know, you saw that with the, the Senkaku Islands, you know, the Diao Yudao thing, yeah. where it was like, Everybody get mad at Japan right now. So everybody gets mad at Japan. Everybody starts smashing stores. I was there. This actually happened twice while I was in China where they had these big anti-Japan things. So let's go smash everything. And it was hilarious. The one time I was in Huajian Bay, this big electronics district, and they had protests. And on all the LED signs outside the shops, they were like, you know, the, the, the whatever fishing islands are Chinese, they belong to China. Uh, Baidu, if you went on there, like, you know, you get the Google Doodles on Google, and the Baidu Doodle was like, Diao Yu Dao Shi Zhong Guo pop stars doing rap songs when about Diao Yu Dao Shi Zhong Guo I went in to get my car serviced, and they they asked me if I wanted to get a bumper sticker that's like Diao Yu Dao Shi Zhong Guo <laughs> for my car at the dealership, okay? Yeah, yeah. With a fist, you know, like one of those communist things, you know? Yeah. And I was like, that's okay, I think I'll, uh, I'll, pass I'll, I'll stop. Then. 
I was thinking about trolling people actually and secretly at night going and put Diao Yudao which means it's Japanese, on people's cars to see how badly they'd get vandalized. But I never went that far. There's, there's always a thing in my, the back of my mind. Anyway, the fact <laughs> of the matter is it was crazy. So I was in Huajan Bay and the protest was like thousands and thousands of people all pissed off about Japan, all shouting slogans and stuff. And this is obviously staged, okay? And the police drove in a very battered old Honda CRV, you know, police car. They drove it like into the middle of the crowd. All the police got out and kind of walked back and were like, you know, have at it basically. And the crowd overturned it and beat it up and broke it up. And I was like, this is ridiculous. It's so staged. And then you would see in the newspaper, like this overturned police car, like the, the populace is so enraged about Japan. They, they're taking it out on the cars. But then it got to a point, and th this is what I'm trying to make my point here. It's it got to a point where it got out of hand. I mean, if you had a sushi shop or a, you know anything to do with Japan at all, like a restaurant that had anything to do with Japanese food, they were being smashed up and destroyed and vandalized. And the owners were like putting Chinese flags on the windows and saying, this is a Ch Chinese owned and run establishment, doesn't matter. It says something about Japan on it, destroy it. You drive a Toyota, your car gets trashed. You know, It doesn't matter that you're a Chinese and you've spent your entire life saving up for that car. You've just bought this brand new car. Oh, it's Japanese. So all the mobs are just destroying your car. So suddenly text messages, you know, they send these blanket text messages that all phones get in China whenever they need to say something. You get these text messages and it was read something like, while it's good to be patriotic and proud of your country, we have to start to uh, respect private property. You know, don't go too far type thing. So they sent that out to try and quell the masses. Eventually they were like, look, this is getting out of hand. And all of a sudden, overnight like they do, all those like nonsense everywhere just disappeared. Not allowed to put it out anymore. Not allowed to talk about it because it was getting out of hand. Riots were forming. Property was being destroyed. Businesses were grinding to halt, like Nissan dealerships were being broken into and all the cars being burnt and overturned and stuff. It really got out of hand. Then it reached a point where you can't go out and start being anti-Japanese anymore, you know? So that's the problem with China is that the narrative flips all the time. And so if you get too involved in any particular thing, it can actually work against you next month or next week when they decide it's not good. That actually ties in. I didn't know where you'd go back to the annals of, of history here with the Japan right. protests, but right. it's interesting. I was in a third tier city when this happened and the stage police thing that you're talking about, it happened for real because people got text messages about how to go out and protest against Japan. So in this particular area of, of the city of Huizhou that I was in, they were going out and attacking, it was Hondas as well, but it wasn't police cars, it was actual people's cars, sure, right? Sure. And the thing is, uh, we had sushi shops as well, the mm -hmm. Japanese supermarket all smashed in. Everyone that worked at these places was Chinese, sure. right? It was just representing something Japanese. So immediately in the, in the people's minds, they were like, we have to go attack this thing. Sure. The cars, were also not Japanese. They were the part, joint partner ownership of Guangzhou Honda. Yeah. So that it's 51% ownership of China. And everyone that works there putting together that car in China, building this car in China, in Guangzhou, is Chinese. Yeah. Right. So you're taking it out on another Chinese element. Right. What happened was this protest got so out of hand that, again, the, the government had to pull the plug. So it served national, nationalist sentiment in the beginning. Yeah. Take their eyes off of maybe the economy's dipping. At the maybe time, I think it was the Borshilai. Borshilai incident. Yeah, yeah, so we're like, we got to put something out there to get people's eyes off. And people jump on it. They're yeah. like, finally, we get a chance to get out there and you know relieve some some of our anger, right? State-backed protests, you know, state-condoned state yeah. riots. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah. they go out there and do that, but then it gets too much, right? And they have to pull the plug. It's but it served its purpose already. Sure. People have vented, and the next flavor of their week isn't won't be Japan. Maybe it'll be Canada next time, yeah. and we hate Canada for this. But at that time, you know, the, all the restaurants were putting up signs saying we won't serve Japanese people and all this kind of stuff, and that all vanished, you know, as soon as the government told them to. So. To sum it up, really, we never blamed the apathy of, of Chinese people that don't go out there and try to make change for all this kind of stuff because you can't. Sure. Number one, you've been beaten into submission, whether it's through your work structure, the power structure there. Education. Uh, education, the educational system, the gaokao, mm -hmm. all the stresses of life are so much worse yeah. for people in mainland China that try to step outside the box a little bit. That apathy is, it makes a whole lot of sense, but it also is a very, very... Um, it's a it's a bad breeding ground for an authoritarian government to have absolute control. Yeah, because uh, we were talking about the Japan thing. There was a, a not that long ago there was a, an American like anti-American thing that was yeah. going on because again America was doing one of those freedom of movement exercises in the South China Sea. You know, obviously the the government decided okay it's now time for us to give the go ahead and allow our citizens to be outraged about this because usually they don't allow that you know but they're like start to put it out on news media. You know, America is so belligerent and, you know, trying to invade our waters and stuff, okay? So I wasn't aware of this, you know, because, you know, I don't keep up with the Chinese news too much. When I was living in China, I didn't really give a crap because it's it's kind of mind-numbing if you really follow it. And um, I went in to get a laptop repaired and it was an Apple laptop. And I went to Huajan Bay again. You got all these little stalls in these big kind of buildings. It's just incredible. Like you can get anything fixed anywhere there. You know, because they've got all the parts coming in from the iPhone factories and stuff, and they can, you know, they can just do it for you right there. So I went up to this one place that I'd used before, you know, little Apple specialty shop, and that's all they do is they fix iPads, iPhones, and, you know, that type of thing. I go up to their store, uh, their stall, and I'm like, can you fix this laptop? And they all stood up at the same time, and the one, the guy pointed at me and asked me, you know, Nisha Megwar, am I, you know, are you American? I was like, no. And he's like, good. And he said, look here. And he pointed to their bin. They're like trash bin. They had smashed iPhones, smashed iPads, smashed Apple stuff. They're like, we're boycotting America. We smashed our iPhones. Americans are garbage, all this stuff. You know, typical rhetoric. I'm like, okay, then I'll go somewhere else. The stupid thing is, is that like probably about a month later, when, when this had all died down, I went back to the same stall just because I was walking past. And there they are. Now they all have new iPhones, new iPads new things they had to replace themselves. Just shows you how vapid and stupid you have to, is. You have, if, you're, you know? if you're a foreigner in China, you have to know what country is hated at the moment because yeah. that whole, that dialogue that you had with that guy is, we've, I've had that so many times where I've had to not say, say that I'm not American. Remember when we were up in, in Harbin, we were up yeah. there filming the blind masseuses. We think it's very impressive that- Yeah, for Chinese, our documentary, Conquering yeah, Northern China. China yeah. hires blind people to have their own massage parlors and yeah. stuff to give them employment. It's a nice thing. It's a nice sentiment. So yeah. we went to go film it. And on the way, we realized a lot of these places are also controlled by thugs. Sure. So you have these thug guys that wear these, you know, these bead necklaces and like these have tattoos and stuff, and they control their respective area. Yeah. A lot of organized crime, people don't realize organized crime in China is massive. Sure. It's absolutely massive. But we were, when he saw us that we were going to the massage parlor to go film, that was his jurisdiction, basically. It's massive tattoo dude. And he goes, 
Are you guys? Are you, we have our yeah, where are you from? Where are you from? And then uh, that you guys were like blah blah England. Yeah, yeah. Africa. We're from. We're from, we just. I always say I'm from England because it's so less complicated than explaining to them why I'm not black every yeah, time. Yeah. So, so you know, it's like uh, you know, me and the cameraman. You know, mm -hmm. the, the cameraman actually are British, and yeah. we just said, oh, watching. Uh, but I almost, I almost, I almost said did. I was American. He goes. Good, because if you're American, you'd be in big trouble right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, like, oh god, yeah, it's like, you never know. Yeah, it's but you good never that you're know. British yeah. right now. You you shouldn't be Canadian. If no, no, or Australian. Sure. If you're Canadian or Australian, you're you're done. There was there was a time where you couldn't be French because French, you know yeah. during the Olympic torch thing, there was, yeah. in France they put it out or whatever those right. protesters. So it's like if you're French, you're screwed. So it just depends on the flavor of the day, really. Is there any place that's like totally safe? You can always be from that country. Estonia, <laughs> China. Uh, Russia's pretty safe, they, although people yeah. do look down on Russians sometimes, especially in the north, because a lot of them will come to China for employment opportunities. Mm. Uh, but you wouldn't get like beat up for it or anything. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Right, but I mean, like even in China, Communist Party members aren't safe. You know, like they get purged every so often too. So it's really like like nobody's safe. No, no one's safe. That's what people don't understand is that. Especially, and this is a message I always try to give to people that are either in the honeymoon phase of their China career or they're also, they think that the more positive uh, information that they put out about the Communist Party of China, the more the safer they are. And what they don't realize is that the irony of having to do that just shows you the situation that you're in. And number two, it doesn't matter how positive. We, we've known so many positive people. In fact, yeah. a person's currently in jail right now that's yeah. very positive and does a lot of good PR for China. Yeah. The moment they want to make an example out of you, whether you're Chinese in the Communist Party or you're a, you're a foreigner or not, it doesn't matter where you're from or what your, your position is. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what rhetoric you spout. The day that the Communist Party of China decides that you're either not useful or you're a hindrance in some way, they will throw the book at you. Yeah. And that's my message to people that go out there thinking that they're covering their ass all the time by saying, oh, look at how amazing you know the Chinese Communist Party is. Look at how well they deal with things. You're a pawn and you're only a pawn to a certain point. A useful idiot. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of what you've been saying has has made has making me think of something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's it's how does a normal functional society get to the point of a cultural revolution? And like, you know, you're talking about people in Hong Kong who, you know, one day they had freedoms, now they don't. Or people in China who like, hey, this is the narrative you get angry about. Oh no, you're angry about that narrative, you're in big trouble. And, you know, I see a lot of things happening in the United States. For example, I remember uh, the Patriot Act was a really scary thing, and now they're talking about a new uh, domestic terrorist thing, and it's like, uh, what, what's happening here? And I just think that's really uh, an important thing for people to think about. Like, you just take for granted, oh, the Cultural Revolution happened. It's a historical fact. But really, how does a society go through that? Well, I mean, you also have to understand that... Uh in a place like America, you have rule of law and there are checks and balances in place. And if people are stepping out of line or something's happening that people don't like, you can talk about it and you can challenge it, whether it be through the law courts or peaceful protesting or whatever, that can be done. In a place like China and historically too, you could not do that. You know, it's always been an emperor-based system or, you know, some kind of feudal nonsense or, or a communist-based system these days. A fantastic Republican system. No corruption. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know that's that's another thing is that um, 
you can just be taken and disappeared and, and be dealt with in China because there is no rule of law. There's nothing to fall back on. You cannot, if you try to hire a lawyer to defend yourself because you've been accused of doing something in China, that lawyer will go to jail as well with you. You know, that's kind of how it works. You, you don't see a lot of human rights lawyers that are not in trouble in China, for instance. It's just one of those things. Um, it's, China operates on this weird gray area. And it's almost like a, a, a trust system in a way, because what happens is you can do what you want as long as you just don't piss off the wrong people or cross a certain mm. invisible line, which moves all the time, by the way. It, it's, it can be far away or it can be near. You never really know. You'll never know. So, you know, you, you can have like when we were in China, we had the freest lifestyle you can imagine. We could go out roaming on the streets like drunken fools, going to barbecue restaurants, having a great time, riding our motorcycles wherever we want, doing what we want. We had this perceived incredibly free lifestyle. But at the same time, we were so close so many times to being absolutely messed up and completely disappeared and, and terrible things happening to us. And if that had happened to us as, as it has happened to people we know, um, there would have been nothing we could do about it. Whereas here in the States, if you get accused of something or you get you know, arrested for something, you have a fighting chance in court. You know, you can't just be, they can't just say, oh, you've disrupted the harmony of society and so we're going to arbitrarily send you away to a black prison for 12 years, you know? That's if, if the you're, difference. If you're talking about the Cultural Revolution as well, I mean, a lot of people like to think that, and unfortunately this is just not the case, they like to think that China could go through something similar with enough popular support and it could be a positive change for China. Unfortunately, the status quo is what the CCP has ingrained in people's minds. Moderate prosperity. The only way, the only way that something could change is not through outside influence. In China, I'm talking about it, not through outside influence, not through cultural exchange, nothing, nothing of the sort. The only way things at this point could change are if people didn't have enough money, right? Because mm -hmm. people's love for the government and stuff, it might look like an incredibly nationalistic society, but like Winston said, the people that speak out and are the most vocal nationalists are not the majority of people in China. Mm -hmm. The majority of people in China just want to make sure that they can get by. Yeah. And the government kind of promises a modicum of, of prosperity. And stability. And stability. If you take that away, if you take that away, if you if they can't get that basic salary or their income starts being becoming less and less sure. throughout the years, then there would be some absolute, absolute unrest for sure. Yeah. And that would be the only way that this this would happen. Yeah. For sure. It's all money based. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's going to be a problem since we just keep pumping money that's, that's the uh, issue. into the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party. So they'll be OK. Yep. <laughs> uh, maybe you can answer this for me, because th this is something that's been boggling my mind for a very long time. Why is it that countries like Canada, for instance, who keep getting, I don't know, for lack of a better word, smacked or slapped on the wrist by China every few days or every few months? Why is it that they still t send tens of millions of dollars worth of aid to China every year? Why? <laughs> Well, for Canada in particular, we did a, a very interesting interview with Cleo Pascal a week or two ago, and, and she talks about this this long history of uh, sort of Canada-China exchange, going back to the Qing dynasty, actually. And the Canada's frozen deep state of officials, of Canadian officials and, and prime ministers who all have these connections and- Particularly the Trudeau family. Right. And so, so even if you have a lot of Canadians people who don't like it, you've got, you know, this sort of elite power structure in the Canadian government. Power Corp is this big Canadian company that's got interests in China. And so it almost doesn't matter what the majority of people think if the representatives in government 
the elected ones as well as the you know unelected bureaucrats uh, want to do business with China. So uh, I mean, I think that's the situation everywhere. You've got you've got one thing that people you know on the ground want, or that they would want if they knew about it, uh, and then you've got you know, a, a much smaller group of, of people with special interests in having that positive relationship with the Chinese Communist it's, it's Party. It's the same thing with Germany, how uh, the German financial industry, the manufacturing industry, very tied to China. Right. In fact, you see Angela Merkel pushing this new EU-China trade deal primarily to benefit German industry. And what can the people do about it when you have these this elite structure that is profiting tremendously from the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I, I appreciate the explanation. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's still beggars belief that a country like China that claims to be so powerful and is growing so much and has such a strong economy, why it is that they need like aid? You know, shouldn't that be sent to poor countries that actually need it? Why is it being sent to China? All it's doing is bolstering their military. Well, specifically with that, China, the Chinese Communist Party likes to walk this line of we are a superpower. We should have control over international institutions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, we're still a developing country. Sure, we so need cool. foreign yeah. aid. We're not a we're not a threat to anyone. We're just you know trying to developing. Sure. And that's why you know you also get Xi Jinping talking about ah oh, the big goal moderately prosperous. Right. Sure. Very ambitious. <laughs> right. And and, and ambitious. for all the talk about lifting millions of people out of poverty, which course is nonsense and and the, we don't want to go into that but the part that doesn't get talked about is you still have half the population hundreds of millions of people in China who are living on you know less than ten dollars a day even less than two dollars a day sure. yeah we've uh, seen it we've very we've seen very it. poor parts of the country and just like I guess the Communist Party doesn't want the world to know how impoverished so many people are but at the same time they also want you, you know, other countries to give them money for aid. So it's kind of this weird, but they've they've managed to to really uh, straddle this surprisingly well. Yeah. This is like 4D chess, you know, it's ridiculous what they're doing. We've seen that poverty firsthand. Um, you know, we, we've traveled extensively throughout the rural parts of China and the beauty of riding a motorcycle in China is that they're banned from the freeways. You're not, a, well, very recently they've allowed certain classes of motorcycles, but we're riding little motorcycles that we built ourselves, and you're only allowed to take the side roads and the the guodals, the national roads and stuff. You're not allowed to take the highways. So it forces you to go through rural villages, mountains, small towns, things like that, that nobody usually would see. You would just pass them by on the highway. And so we've managed to see just how bad it gets. Well, we People don't understand what income inequality means until you've been to rural China. And I'm talking about only five or 10 minutes outside of the main city. Sure. It's a different, it's a different world. It's a different standard of living. It's a different mentality. It's a different, it's, it's like a different country. Yeah. The people in these rural areas do not fraternize with the people in the city centers. They're, there is more judgment. Like people like to think that Americans are divided and judgmental and stuff. Mm. There is so much judgment passed on the the elite rich, and I'm talking about people that are that would be considered like a McDonald's wage here. Sure, I, I say rich in China because if you look at the entire per person GDP, they would be considered rich. Yeah. They would look so down on a farmer or a peasant or something yeah, just right outside. Two is what they say. Right, dirt, a dirt bun. Right, just very, very derogatory terms because that's how divided the society in China is about, not about nationality, but about your status and your wealth. 
Yeah. And people don't get how divided that actually is and how unbelievably poor a lot of China can be. Sure. Um, and the government can throw out all these initiatives and say, we've combated poverty and all this kind of stuff. That's fine. But at the end of the day, the, the reality on the, of the situation is unless you get outside that city, you're going to be probably pretty impressed with the, the wealth that China's acquired. Sure. But you're also, yeah. when you, as soon as you leave that city, you're going to be incredibly disappointed at how unevenly that's distributed. Well, I even remember like a documentary I saw called uh, Angel of Nanjing. And it's about this guy who has just dedicated his life to stopping people from throwing themselves off this bridge, killing themselves. And it just really gives you perspective of how desperate, even in a, a city like Nanjing, it gets for people that it's just grinding. It's grueling. Right. Yeah. You, you find out very quickly just how cold and harsh China can be when you run out of money. I found out firsthand. I mean, that's you can say that about anywhere. You could be like in New York and you don't have any money. It's going to be difficult to find someone to help you out. It's going to be a tough time. But man, oh man, I ran out of money. I was, uh, I actually lived on the streets for two days, had to sleep like in a McDonald's and, you know, that type of thing. When wow. I first got to China and I'd run out of all my money uh, and I didn't really know what I was doing back then. I was a, a complete idiot. I just went to China with this dream of figuring it out. And, you know, I did figure it out, but I tell you what, it was a tough time. And if you don't have money, China becomes a very, very, very inhospitable place. You know, people don't want to talk to you. People don't want to help you out. And that's because there's so much, so many scams, you know, and confidence tricks that go on in China. And it's kind of built into the culture there so much that people avoid anyone who approaches them in public and wants to talk to them or anything, strangers I'm talking about. It's a, it's a very cold society. But if you've got money, all of a sudden it feels like it's the the warmest, most hospitable, amazing place in the world. You know, you go sit down in the restaurant and all the, the waitresses come on over and, you know, want to help you out and everyone's great and everyone's kind of polite. You know, it's it's interesting. So for people that don't have money in China, it's it's a massive, massive struggle. And when you go into those rural areas and you see the, the children walking around barefoot and having to eat rats and stuff like that, and you're just like, this is really not very nice, um, you know, China like lowered its bar for what they call poverty to what, 90 cents a day or whatever Something like it is, that, yeah. just so that they can say they've lifted people out of poverty. No, they didn't really. They just dropped the, the benchmark. You know what I mean? They changed the definition. Yes. Yeah, they changed the definition. It's like, it's crazy. It's like, oh, I want to lose weight. Okay, great. So let's say 100 kilograms is obese. Let's, let's make it 200 kilograms is obese. And if you're 100 kilograms, you're actually slim and in, in, in shape. There we go. Done. That's the, that analogy is very, it's pretty much how the CCP works. Did they do that? If they did that, I'm moving to China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we're almost out of time. Just before, before we go, um, what do you think 2021 has in store for us and for you guys? What are you guys working on? Um, we hope that, uh, you know, as soon as we're vaccinated, we can get out to some other countries. Mm -hmm. We like to hit Japan, um, South Korea, India, and India. That was our 2020 goal until this happened. So <laughs> we'd like to hit at least a couple of those in 2021 and do some more adventure stuff, um, more comparison stuff. Um, and obviously keep fighting the good fight. And that's pretty much our plans. Um, I'm going to talk as a non-American here for a minute. Now that this uh, whole presidential voting thing seems to more or less have come to an end, um, I'm hoping that people can just shut up about it and stop focusing so much on it and start to focus on the things other important things in life, like 
the coronavirus and where it came from, try to figure things out, because that's been a massive distraction that's taken away from some very important things, especially regarding the CCP. So I'm hoping 2021 will give us a little bit of clarity, clarity when it comes to this stuff, because the madness that has been surrounding us in the media specifically will have to die down, because now that Trump's not going to be president anymore, we don't need to see endless things about what color underwear Trump wore this day or what toothpaste he uses or whatever. Hopefully that can just get out of there and people can see, hang on a second, we've got this terrible situation where everyone's kind of locked down because China didn't contain this virus and lied to the world. Maybe we should start looking at them a bit closer and uh, hopefully not be anti-China, but be anti-CCP and see if we can work together in the future with everyone else to kind of bring the Communist Party in line and hopefully deal with them a little better in the future. That's what I hope for for 2021 anyway. Well, a woman to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks. It's all it's it's great to have you guys back on the show. Uh, It's it's you always have such a interesting, unique view of China and the world. It's great to hear. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Definitely. And for anyone watching, I'll Provide the links to all your channels uh, in below. So appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, take care. I hope uh, 2021 you can make those travels because I'll be looking forward to watching those. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And all the best to you and yours, all of you guys. Well, I think that was a very nice way to spend uh, our 100th podcast. Yeah, and uh, I, I like that we ended on some hopeful notes about 2021. That's right. They will be traveling and we will be chained to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we could always, um, you know, actually, what's funny, I got a Facebook notification today that we were in, Ho- uh, we were in Hong Kong, we were in Taiwan a year ago, exactly. Oh, wow, yeah. Today, covering the the elections there. Yeah. Well, I know we also had talked about, before the outbreak happened, going to India, so it might be cool to <laughs> randomly run into those guys in India. That uh, would be, you know, that'd be on wild. The, on the border region. <laughs> I just imagine myself falling off a motorcycle. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say like falling into Pangong Lake or something. I was thinking or we could just hire a taxi. Or that. <laughs> Where's your sense of adventure, Matt? Yeah. You're the one that took a train to Tibet. Yeah, well, I mean, I took a bus to Tibet, but that was also someone else driving me. Uh-huh. The, the only really scary thing is when the PLA came on board and asked if there were any Westerners and I was hiding under the blankets, you know. Yeah. There's no uh, Westerners here. <laughs> And there's no PLA on the Indian-China border. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, looking forward to an exciting 2021. Yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us for all of this and making this possible. I can't imagine, I can't believe how much the channel has grown thanks to your support over these these past uh, two or three years. Uh, yeah, and p- please be sure to check out their channels if you haven't. They're fantastic. Links are below. Uh, yeah. Thank you for making this possible. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesda. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. Oh.